If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope you do. I want to encourage you to open them to 1 Samuel chapter 4. 1 Samuel chapter 4. We're going to look at this entire chapter this morning as you're finding your place there in God's Word. I want to welcome those who are joining us via our live stream. Thank you so much for being with us today. Also, Reach Church DeSoto, the venue service down the hall. So grateful that all of us are able to gather around uh, the glory of God and His Word. Just such a fun time as a church, weekly to gather around, kind of like the campfire of truth in God's word, and to be enlightened, and hopefully and prayerfully to be changed. Uh, as you find your place in God's word, I do want to remind you of an event we have occurring this week, Tuesday night, um, at 6 p.m. in the K Hall, the foundation, LBC Foundation, is hosting an event uh, that will include topics related to living wills and trusts. It's amazing to me uh, how many people do not have a living will and trust. If you don't have one, you need to get one. Um, and if you need information about that, then this would be a great meeting to go to. They can help direct you in the right ways uh, to get that prepared. And then also, uh, a good portion of this is about charitable giving, how you can maximize your giving for the glory of God, to be good stewards of the resources that you have, uh, that God has given to you, he's entrusted to you. Um, we, we have found that a lot of people have questions about those charitable gifts and different resources, and we've got some experts there that will be able to answer your questions and give you some guidance. This is a free event, free. Uh, you get a meal out of it, um, and so if you want to come, uh, register. We need to know how many meals to have. You can do that by going to our website. Go to the events page, and you'll see it right there, or you can just text LBC Foundation to 89449. LBC Foundation to 89449. Well, 1 Samuel chapter 4, you'll remember we left off last week. Samuel has been uh, confirmed as the prophet of God. The nation seems to recognize this guy. God has his hand on his life, and, and God is speaking through him. The question is, as God is speaking his word through his prophet, the question is, will the people listen? Will the people obey? And for all intents and purposes, what we see is that they will not listen, at least initially. They're not going to listen, and they're not going to obey. In fact, as you look at the very first phrase of verse 1 of chapter 4, where it says, the word of Samuel came to all of Israel, there's some controversy over whether or not that'd be better attached to the end of chapter 3 rather than a beginning of chapter 4. Remember, the chapter breaks were put in much later. They were not a part of the original manuscripts uh, but it doesn't really matter, it's right there. But I think the important thing for us to see is that in verse 1, when it says the word of Samuel came to all of Israel, and then they go into battle, it's not under the direction of God. Those two things are not connected. It's not as though they sought the word of the Lord and sought Samuel. We say, how do you know? But here's how we know. Because for the rest of the chapter, all of chapter 4, you're never going to see Samuel mentioned again. All of chapter, now they know he's the prophet of God. He's been confirmed as a prophet of God, but they're not going to consult him. They're not going to go to him. All of chapter four, they're not going to go to him in chapter five. They're not, you're not going to see his name mentioned in chapter six. It's not until you get to chapter seven. In fact, turn over there because you want to know what message he was preaching. I don't think he changed his message. In fact, his first message to Eli was one of judgment that in chapter seven, verse three, we see Samuel again mentioned. It says, then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel in verse 3, saying, if you return to the Lord with all your heart, remove the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him alone, uh, he'll deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So it's apparent that God has confirmed Samuel as prophet and his word through Samuel to the nation is repent. 
or there will be judgment. And the picture we get is that the people of God, Israel, is going to say, well, we don't really like that message. Uh, We don't really like this judgment. Uh, Eli didn't do that to us. And we don't really like this repentance message. We like to just keep doing what we do and ask God to bless it. And how is that going to work out for them? We're going to do whatever we're going to do. We love God, but we don't really want to consult him, and we don't want to repent of our sins, and we like to just add him to our other gods, but then we're going to seek his blessing. And what we're going to see is that there's going to be pain, pain, and more pain. Psalm 127.1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. Meaning you can live however you want to live, just don't expect God to bless it. Don't live however you want to live and then say, now, God, you got to bless me when I ask you. It doesn't work that way. Or the, 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 uh, the opposite side of that is that you can do what God told you to do. You can live under his directives. Realize, God has rigged this deal. There's a certain way to live and know his blessing. But if you will not do it, you'll know pain. You're going to learn one way or another. You can learn by precept or you can learn by pain, but you're going to learn to obey him. Because his word is true, whether you believe it or not. In fact, Scripture tells us, Psalm 119, the word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. The word of God, you walk in submission to God. You're under the the umbrella of protection and submission to him. He illumines your path. There's a protection in following him and living according to his word. But you turn the light of God's word out. What what happens in the middle of the night? You get up and try to navigate your house with the lights off. Eventually, you're going to stub your toe. There's going to be pain. That's what's going to happen to Israel. They're going to turn the lights out on God, and they're going to have pain and pain and pain. And then in chapter 7, they're going to say, you know what? Maybe we ought to turn back to God. Do we do that sometimes in our own life? Wouldn't it be a whole lot easier if we just heard the word of God and God illumined our hearts to the truthfulness of his word and we just obeyed him immediately and walked in submission to it. That's the blessing of life. You hear his word, you you submit, and you you walk in, in, in obedience to his word and you know his blessings. But I don't know about you, but in my life a lot of times I start to get to the place where I think I know better than God. Listen, I'm an educated man. And uh, God says, you're not that smart. And we try to navigate life on our own. It's not like we totally reject God. We just decide to go about our life and do whatever we want to do. And we don't really acknowledge him. We make big decisions without him. And we just ask him to bless our plans. And God says, we'll see how that goes. And oftentimes it's not until we experience his pain that we begin to think, well, you know what? Walking with God's a whole lot better. And I think I'll start submitting to his word and following him. That's the overall lesson that Israel's going to learn. They're going to walk in disobedience. They're going to lose battle one. They're going to lose battle two. They're going to lose the ark of God. And then when the ark of God returns, they're going to lose 50,000 men because they do what they shouldn't have done. And then they'll turn back to God. So with that in mind, let's pray together. Then we'll work our way through this chapter. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we don't have to come up with an idea of who you are. You've told us who you are in your word. You've told us how we're to respond to you. You've told us how we're to worship you and obey you. And so, God, we thank you. Apart from your word, we would not know who you are. 
God, I pray that you'd speak to us in your word. I pray that you would bless your word. That's my only prayer today. Bless your word. May it go forth in power. May you illumine our hearts to the clear principles of this text. And I pray that we'd apply them to our lives, that we'd obey, that we wouldn't simply be hearers of the word, but we'd be doers. This is our prayer. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, look at chapter 4, verse 1. Thus the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle and camped beside Ebenezer while the Philistines camped in Aphek. Now again, they're not seeking the heart of God. They're just making decisions kind of willy-nilly. This is what we want to do. This is what we've decided to do. And it's a just cause. The Philistines were an immoral, pagan a nation that was a, a thorn in the side of Israel for a very, very long time. And so it was a just cause. And in fact, many of the commentators agree that they're using some very wise tactics in how they're going to come against the Philistines. But the fact of the matter remains, it doesn't matter how just your cause, and it doesn't even matter how wise your tactics, if you're living in sin, you can't expect God's blessing. And so they've just decided we're going to do this. And uh, what I see here, in fact, I wrote in the side notes of my Bible, they, they don't want to know God's will. They just want God to bless their will. Is that ever our lives where we get to the place where we don't really want to know God's will? We, we just want to do our will and then ask God to bless it. We don't seek him on the front end. We make up our mind about what we're going to do, and then we say, God, now you bless what we've decided to do. So here goes the nation of Israel. Battle number one, we're going to seek to... Uh, seek God's victory apart from obedience and repentance. Look at verse 2. The Philistines drew up in battle array to meet Israel. When the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. So here is loss number one. And the reason is obvious because there is sin in the camp. Israel is not accustomed to losing battles. They normally win. Israel never lost a battle for a lack of resources. Israel never lost a battle because they didn't have enough money. They never lost a battle because they didn't have enough military men. They only lost when they were walking in unfaithfulness to God. You remember after Jericho, the walls of Jericho, great victory, and then they go out against Ai and, uh, and they lose. And Joshua falls on his face. God, what, what's, what's happened? He's genuinely seeking God. And God says, you know what happened. There's sin in the camp, and you've got to get rid of sin. You can't, you can't go and expect my blessing when you walk in disobedience and sin. And so they search it out, and they find they got an aching in the camp. Well, here is Israel again losing a battle because they're walking in disobedience. And they're expecting God to bless their battle. Well, look at verse 3. When the people came into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? This is so interesting to me. Because there's a couple of parts about this that are really good. Number one, they recognized us. Why has the Lord defeated us? They do recognize the sovereignty of God. They recognize that the Philistines didn't beat them. God did that God is sovereign over that loss. God is sovereign over the circumstances of their life and of this nation. 
But I do not think this is a genuine question. I don't think they're really going, God, why has this thing happened to us? I don't think they're really sincere because they're not going to seek God to know. Because if they'd genuinely gone to God and said, why did this happen? I think God would have directed them to Samuel who would have said, repent if you want to know God's blessing and victory. This is not a genuine com- uh, confession or, or, or a seeking of God's will, but this is blaming God. This is them saying, isn't this interesting? They're walking in sin. They're walking in disobedience. Then they experience pain. They say, God, why'd you do this to us? You ever known anybody like that, that they're they're walking? It might be you. You're walking in sin and disobedience. You don't acknowledge God any more than whatever else. You're, You're just walking through life. You're not reading his word. You're not seeking him in prayer. And then something bad happens in your life and you blame God. Why did this happen to me? That's the heart of this nation. God, why would you do to this to us? If they'd have generally wanted to know, I think God would have told them. Well, what's worse than blaming God is then in the middle of verse 3, they're not only going to blame God, now we're just going to use God. It says, let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. Now, there's a lot wrong with this solution. Uh, But first of all, God told Israel, my ark stays in my designated place. You don't remove the ark from where I told you to put it. But here's what they're going to do. In their sin and disobedience, they're going to seek to use the ark of God as a good luck charm. Uh, In the Old Testament, uh, the ark of God was a symbol, of uh, a sacred symbol of God's presence and glory amongst the nation. We don't have time to go into all the significance of the ark, but just know this. It was a sacred symbol of God's presence in the nation. And the picture here is that you don't use God as a good luck charm. You don't use God as some kind of rabbit's foot to help you achieve your personal goals. The picture here is you have a nation that doesn't really love God. They only love what they hope God can give them. So they don't really seek God. They don't really worship God. They use him to work their side of the street and to bless their plans and hopefully gain victory. Listen, the picture that we see in Scripture is you either worship God for who he is or you do not worship him at all. He is not a God to be used. He is a God to be worshipped. He's a God to be obeyed. And so here is this leadership walking in sin and error and immorality, leading the nation to walk in in sin and in immorality, using God as some kind of good luck charm. By the way, God's presence is not confined to a box. It, It was the message of God in the Old Testament. God was with them. He gave them this this physical symbol of his presence, but God's presence was a whole lot bigger than a box. So they're, they're in error theologically. They're in error practically. Look at verse 4. So the people sent to Shiloh, and from there they carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who sits above the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. You know what's interesting? The people just kind of go along with this. Eli goes along with this. Uh, because he's going to send Hophni and Phinehas. And I think it's apparent, as we'll see later in the story, that Eli knows this is wrong. 
Eli knows what he is doing is wrong. But Eli fears his sons and he fears the people more than he fears God. Boy, that's a dangerous place to be as an individual. When you start fearing man more than you fear God. This was a reminder to me as I was reading this and I look at the sad, sad story of Eli's life. There is only one thing in my life that I truly fear and that's being unfaithful to God. The only thing that you really need to fear is being unfaithful to God because as long as we're faithful to God, what does the scripture go? If God is for us, who can be against us? If we're faithful to God, He's with us. Now, it doesn't mean that everything will go well, but we have the promise that he is with us. And so here is this nation. uh, You've got a leader who's more fearful of his sons and the people than he is of obedience to God. He leads the nation into sin. But I I can't help but wonder as they send a Shiloh and they say, we need the ark to bring it up here to battle. I can't help but wonder if there weren't some folks in Shiloh who said, that just don't seem right. You know what I mean? You you just wonder, who was there to say, you know, we know what this ark is, and it's a symbol, and God has said, you leave it in its designated place. This doesn't sound like a good idea, but the entire nation's gonna walk in sinfulness. They're gonna walk in disobedience. And Hophni and Phinehas, these two immoral boys, are are leading to the way way to the judgment that God has already pronounced uh, upon their life. And so look at verse five. As the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, All Israel shouted with a great shout so that the earth resounded. When the Philistines heard the the noise of the shout, they said, what does the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. The Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who shall deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who smote the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. It's interesting that the whole nation is now treating God as if he's some kind of idol. They're treating God as as though he's just another God of all the other nations. That God is contained in this little box. And in fact, you see the Egyptians here, they will refer to God in the plural. They will refer to the gods of Israel. And you, what you see here is Israel was intended to be a light of God to the, to the world, to the nations. They were to rightly depict who God is in their worship of him and how God had directed them to worship him. They were to portray to the, to the world the character of God. And now they are wrong in their doctrine. They are wrong in their worship. And they are leading the world astray in an understanding of who God is. In this way, they are defaming mean the character of God. This is why it is so important. Doctrine and theology are important to us that we worship God for who he truly is. And our worship of him is displayed in our lives and it affects other people's viewpoint of God. Do you understand this today? How you interact with God in your daily life has a huge effect on how other people view God. I mean, even as a parent, as I was reading this, I was thinking to myself, with my kids, we know this, that theology is caught more than it's taught. It's one thing to teach your kids about who God is, but what does your life say about who God is? 
Do they see God as the bedrock foundation of your life? Do they see that the one passion of your life is Jesus Christ? Do they see you as a married couple pursuing God in prayer and seeking discernment from him in all things, knowing that in your lives they watch and they see the one thing that matters most to my mom and dad is the glory of God? In fact, this is so important too. As I, I, I think about this as, as parents, what do we praise our kids for? What do we applaud them for? More often than not, you ask a parent about their kids, and I, listen, I've been guilty of this too. They ask you about your kids, and they'll start telling you about their athletic ability. Or they'll start talking to you about their, their, their grades in school. And one of the things I've tried to teach my boys, and I've, they've heard me say this over and over again, I could care less what job you have. I can care what, less what school you go to, what degree you get. I can care less if you ever make money. What I do care about is you love Jesus and you follow him. And I hope and pray that you see in my life that what matters most to me and your mom is not what kind of house we live in, not what kind of car we drive, not how much money we make, but what matters most to us is the glory of God and making his glory known in our lives. And so we see, boy, the, 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 the nation of Israel, they're so off, and now they've affected the Philistines' view of God. They know about God. They know about what God did in Egypt. You know what's interesting about the Egyptians? When God led Israel out of Egyptian bondage, the ark didn't exist. <laughs> the ark didn't win the victory. God won the victory. So using God is a good luck charm. It's so it should, People will start to despise the word of God. They'll walk in disobedience and error, and they start to get very superficial in their religiosity. They start to think, well, if I've got that pocket Bible with me, or if I wear that crucifix around my neck, or maybe even while well, I went to church this Sunday, listen to me, all your external religiosity matters none if your heart is not right with God. And so here they are, they're giving a false portrayal of who God really is. And, and the, 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 the Philistines, look at verse, look, Page flip, look at verse nine. It says, take courage and be men, O Philistines, or you'll become slaves to the Hebrews if they have been slaves to you. Therefore, be men and fight. You know, you know what I think the attitude of the Philistines is? If God can be contained in a box, he must not be that powerful. If he's just another God like our gods, then we don't really have anything to be afraid of. Because what they thought is if we beat you in battle, then our God beat your God. Now, it's going to be interesting because as you see, the ark of God is going to be taken. But make no mistake about it, in this battle, God has not been defeated. Because God is sovereign over this. And come back next week and you'll see how God uh, demonstrates his sovereignty over Dagon. Uh, but here, the Philistines, well, if your God can be contained in a box, he must not be that powerful. Let's, let's be men. Let's fight. In verse 10, so the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. Every man fled to his own tent, and the slaughter was very great, for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. So 30,000 men died. This is loss number two. Israel is now 0 for 2. Verse 11, and the ark of God was taken, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Verse 12, now a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and dust on his head. So here's a runner. Uh, he ran about 20 miles in one day. You talk about a, 
a, a good runner. He takes off running, and his appearance demonstrates the news that he is bringing is not good news. In fact, Shiloh, this was so important to Shiloh. Shiloh was where the temple was. But after this moment, when the ark is removed from Shiloh, the temple will no longer be in Shiloh. Where is it going to be? We're going to take it to the city of David. We're going to go to Jerusalem later on. But it will be removed from Shiloh. In fact, in the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel, the people of God in Jeremiah and Ezekiel's day, when the people of God are in exile, they will say, but God can't remove himself from the temple. He has to stay, as long, God has to stay at the temple. And you know what Ezekiel and Jeremiah will do? Go back and look at Shiloh. <laughs> God doesn't have to stay anywhere. God is not contained in buildings or locations. He's sovereign. He's omnipotent. Uh, and so here, this man, he brings bad news from Shiloh. He knows what's happened. Verse 13, when he came, behold, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road, eagerly watching because his heart was trembling for what? For the ark of God. He knows we can lose a lot of things, but we cannot lose the presence of God. So the man came to tell it in the city, and all the city cried out. In verse 14, when Eli heard the noise of the outcry, he said, what does this noise, the, the noise of this commotion mean? And then the man came hurriedly and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were shut so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I'm the one who came from the battle line. Indeed, I escaped from the battle line today. And he said, how did things go, my son? Verse 17, then the one who brought the news replied, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there's also been a great slaughter amongst the people. And your two sons, also Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been taken. Verse 18, when he mentioned the ark of God... You know what's so interesting about this? This runner comes with this message in verse 17, and he says, number one, we've lost the battle. Eli doesn't stop him. That doesn't really affect Eli. He says, there's been a great slaughter, and a great number of people have died. That doesn't really affect Eli. Your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, can I, you, you imagine worse news, receiving worse news than your two boys have both died today. That, that, that's about as bad as it could get. But that doesn't really affect him. What is it that affects him? When he finds out that the ark of God was taken. Eli, listen, here is a man who knew the word of God. He knew what he should and should not do. And he has realized we've made a big mistake here. And if God's presence is taken from us, there's no reason to live. In verse 18, when he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell off the seat backward beside the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for he was old and heavy. That's the Bible's way of saying he's fat. You know, you know what's interesting? The Bible rarely mentions weight. It doesn't talk much about it. Why would it mention here? It mentions it here, I believe, because how did Eli get fat? Off the sacrifices, didn't he? He had that three-pronged fork, and he would stick it in, and the people would say, well, but no, whoa, 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 we, we got to take the fat off first, because that goes to the glory of God, and Eli and Hophni and Phinehas say, no, 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 you do what we tell you to do. We're going to disobey God here. We're going to take what rightly belongs to God 
we're going to take that glory unto ourselves. This man came fat because he took what was rightfully God's and he put it in his belly. And it brings down God's judgment on him. There's a powerful picture here. It doesn't matter how important you think you are. You disobey God. God can set you down like that. Nobody, nobody can say I'm too big or too important for God. That boy, God's got to have me or the whole thing's going under. God says, we'll just see about that. As I was reading this, I couldn't help but think about that great basketball movie, Hoosiers. You ever seen? Pastor Jim loves that movie. All kinds of biblical Biblical references in that. But you remember uh, Gene Hackman, the team, he told them the game, they got to pass the ball three times, and then you can shoot. And Ray's their best shooter. You remember Ray? Ray said, well, we'll just see about that. I think I'm going to shoot whenever I want to shoot. And so he starts shooting, and coach pulls him, sits him on the bench. Well, then one of their players fouls out. They've only got six kids, so that kid fouls out, and Ray starts taking off his warm-ups. Because you got to have five players on the team, don't you? you got to have five players on the court. Ray starts taking, just starts running out. What did Gene Hackman say? Sit down. What, what are you talking about? Sit down. My team's on the court. Do you know what God is finally saying to Eli? He's known it's coming. Sit down. I will not have a man who uses and abuses me for his own glory. I will sit you down. Boy, you don't think that is a warning to any man of God who seeks to be a prophet of God? God doesn't need you. He needs you to be faithful. That's all he needs. And so he sits Eli down. Eli falls over. I think Eli died of a broken heart. He knew what he had done. I don't know where Eli stands eternally, but I know that's a miserable way to die. And he stands as a testimony to God's judgment. Then there's another person. Look at this. Look further down. Verse 19, now his daughter-in-law, Phineas' wife, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was taken, that her father-in-law and her husband had died, she kneeled down and gave birth, for her pains come upon her. So, so she hears the news of what's happened to the ark of God, her father-in-law, her husband. And it just the, the, the moment, the emotion, she goes into, into to labor. And then verse 20, and about the time of her death, so she's going to labor, she's about to die. The women who stood by, by her side said to her, don't be afraid, for you've given birth to a son. Now, this is great news for, for a woman, for an Israelite woman to give birth to a son. That's a joyous occasion. You remember Hannah? She's praying for a son. God gives her a son. It's a great day. It's a great day of celebration. God's given her a son, and it's important to her because these ladies see that she's dying, and she's lost her husband, and they, they're trying to actually cheer her up because they're saying, well, it's okay because you got a son. He's going to carry on your name. And what does it say about her? In verse 20, but she did not answer or pay attention. Her heart is, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Why? Verse 21, and she called the boy Ichabod, saying, the glory has departed from Israel. Some people say, well, she didn't respond because she was so overwhelmed with the emotions of the moment. No, she knew exactly what she's doing because right here she names the boy. And she names him Ichabod, that the glory uh, has departed from Israel because the ark of God is taken and because her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God was taken. She's saying, basically, let her cheer up. You got this son, it's gonna be great. She said, no, 
In many ways, what she's saying, if there's no God in this nation, it'd almost be better if he weren't born. How many of you as parents and grandparents have said in your heart, boy, I don't know about what our kids are gonna have to face. As bad as it's getting, as quickly as it's getting, I don't know what our grandchildren are gonna face. I, you start to think, goodness gracious, is it good to bring a child into this world? But you know what, what Phineas' wife, and I'd love to know more about her story, she's saying, if this nation doesn't have God, then that child has no future anyway. Because listen, we can lose. This is the message of both Eli and Phineas' wife. We can lose a lot of things, but the one thing we can't live without is the presence of God in our life. Boy, is this story not a relevant warning to all of us? Let me just give you two applications as we close. Number one, well, we, we could give you three. The, the first being, can God do this to any nation? Any nation that despises the word of God, says we don't want God anymore, we'd rather do whatever we want to do, we want to live however we want to live. And God says, fine, I'll just take my hand off of you. And there's pain and pain and pain. So I've got my message if Congress ever calls me. There it is. You despise the word of God. There's only pain. But let me tell you more personally, I think about this congregationally. Can this happen to a church? that a church gets away from the word of God. And it's not like, listen, the picture here is not that the, 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 they just reject God, they're God deniers. No, it's just that they start trusting in other things beside God. They're not really seeking God. They're not passionate in their pursuit of God. They're not examining their hearts to see if there's sin. They're not a, there's not a heart of repentance in them. And the picture is that so many times in a church, you can just get to a place where you start trusting in so many other things other than a full reliance and a total dependence upon God. You get to a point where you start trusting buildings or you start trusting programs or you start trusting your finances and you're not in pursuit of God with a heart of repentance. And you can get to a place where your religiosity and all the things that you start doing become just rituals and there's no real heart for God amongst the people and God says you don't want me I'll just take my hand off and we'll see how well you do because listen to me it doesn't matter how great your programs are it doesn't matter how gifted your pastoral team is it doesn't matter how beautiful your building it doesn't matter how much you have in the bank if you don't have a heart of repentance and faith and complete dependence upon God nothing else matters you're dead and that's my greatest fear the, for, for us as a church anyway is that someday somebody would drive past 87th and Lackman and say, didn't there used to be a church there? And now it's first church at Ichabod because the glory departed. I mean, it's a good warning for all of us corporately as a body and especially for us as pastoral leadership that we are on our faces before God with the heart of repentance and total dependence saying God you got to direct us or we have nothing without you then finally individually if you're here this morning just know this if you despise the word of God and 
again, let me just tell you, it doesn't mean that you just outright reject God, but you just start living your life and you're trusting in a whole lot of other things besides God. You get gut level honest. You don't really think about God during the day. You're not really seeking God. You're not praying in your marriage. You're not on your knees before the Lord begging him for his favor and knowing that without him you're nothing. You're just going through the motions of life and every now and then you show up to church and if you get gut level honest, you got a lot of idols in your life, things that are way more important to you than God. And you just start making decisions apart from God. It's amazing to me how many believers in Jesus Christ will make major decisions in their life without ever praying, without ever really seeking God's word. We're just gonna do whatever we wanna do. And then, we're, and then later, we're gonna go back and say, God, now you gotta bless it. Can God ever get to a place where he says, you wanna live without me? I'm not really impressed with your religiosity. What I want is your heart. And he takes his hand off your life. Do you remember what David said after his sin with Bathsheba? Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. You know what David said? You can take everything. But don't take your presence. I can lose everything. I can't lose you. When was, that, when was the last time you got on your knees before God and said, you can take my health, you can take my life, you can take my family, but I can't live without you? Boy, when you're passionate in pursuit of God like that, you, you will know the presence of God in your life. But listen, if you despise him, you may just find yourself like the prodigal son who went off and did his own thing, and there's pain and pain until what? Until he finds it, winds up face first in the mud. How many of you would be, that would be your testimony? You don't have to raise your hand, but you know your testimony is you tried life without God, and you found yourself face first in the mud, and then you looked up, and you were reminded of the Father's house, and you repented of your sin. If that's you today, my one encouragement to you is repent. Repent. Turn from your sin and turn back to Christ. Because we're going to see it with the nation of Israel. As soon as they turn back to Christ, what does he do? There's grace, there's forgiveness. What a beautiful picture of God's love. As I was reading this, the, uh, the song came into my mind. Without you, I could do nothing. Without him, I'd surely fail. Without him, I would be drifting like a ship without a sail. How many of you, that's your testimony today? Without him, I'm nothing. Jesus, oh Jesus, do not turn him away. Jesus, Jesus, trust him today. Father, we thank you for your word that speaks so plainly to us. God, if there's anybody here that doesn't know you, that needs to trust in you as their personal Lord and Savior, God, I pray that you would move in their heart to show them the depth of their sin. And God, I pray that they would repent of their sin, they would turn to you in faith and belief and know your forgiveness, your grace, and your freedom. God, for those of us that do know you, how easy it is to drift, how easy it is to get away from you, to set other things before you, to go about our weeks without ever really acknowledging you simply to tip the hat and go on the way and make our own plans and do our own thing. And then when you don't show up in the way that we think you ought to, then we blame you and we get mad at you. And then we try to use you and think that maybe if we carried our Bible a little bit more, or 
we have the husk of religion but no kernel of faith. And God, I pray that you would not let us get that far. That God, you would do whatever is necessary in our lives to keep us on our knees in total dependence in you. God, we know that one of the great tactics of Satan is to make us successful. He loves to get us to the place where we start to think, look what we did, look what we achieved. Pray that that would never be our heart. We know that Satan loves to deceive us and get us into error. I pray that you would remind us of the truth. We know that Satan loves to distract us with things that don't really matter. I pray that our one focus would be Jesus. And may we always live with a heart that says, Jesus, you can take everything, but I can't lose you. Lord, we love you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.